Good morning, church. My name is Pastor Scott. I am glad to be with you this morning as we do our second week of The Way Forward. Last week, we kicked off, we had a family service and kicked off uh, Romans 1, talking about just Romans will be a reframe for some of us of the Christian story, and we've been holding on to parts that aren't necessarily the core of the gospel. Today, we get Romans 2, we get circumcision, judgment, uh, God's law, and promise of new hearts. And uh, in all seriousness, I will tell you, as a second service, I'm excited to preach to you all this morning. First service, there's definitely a spirit of, uh, of seriousness and somberness and heaviness, uh, both around the text and also around the world. And so we come to the scriptures uh, not ignoring what's happening outside this, these walls, but consciously choosing to focus this morning on Romans 2, consciously choosing to do what the church has done for 2,000 years, that in the time of empire and struggle and uh, everything going on, the church continued to worship God, rally around his word, break bread, as we'll do at the end, and celebrate that the way forward is Christ. And we confidently believe that in everything that's going on that's confusing our society, that Christ is painting a new picture of wholeness in the church. And so we want to proclaim that this morning as we preach Romans 2. The way forward, week two, let me pray and we'll begin. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this morning, these scriptures, these truths. And Lord God, we come to Romans 2 with heavy hearts, and it's interesting because Paul will ask us as a church to, to do some heart work, to look inside and to stop judging other people and instead focus here in Romans 2 on what's going on in our internal spaces. God, we know that there are wounds in the church. We know there is pain that people are bearing. We know that there's distrust and so much animosity going on outside the church and now certainly inside the church. And Lord God, we pray that this message from Romans 2 would mean more this morning than ever before. That our hope is what we have in common and that's your hope in us. So do that work now, God. We ask and pray. Amen. The way forward, week two, your sermon title this morning is called The Tale of Two Hearts, subtext, Don't Judge Me Man. Don't Judge Me Man. We had uh, a couple years ago some trees cut down in our front yard. And as we know in Seattle, trees are important. They're important everywhere. Uh, but we, we received some, some real judgment from a particular neighbor who was not at all pleased that we were taking some trees out. We were led to believe that there was some damage with one of the trees and wanted to take them out for other reasons, including landscaping, but also safety reasons. The neighbor was not at all happy. When the tree was fallen, the one of the trees that was kind of outside our baby son's window at the time, uh, as the tree was fallen, the, the tree cutter was like, oh, wow, the arborist like, look at this, tree rot. It had heart rot. This is, a, this is an actual condition. Heart rot exists in trees where the internal pulp of a tree is rotted away. And scientists say it's, you know, it's, a, it's a long, slow process. There was at one point a wound in the tree. A bacterial or fungal got into the wound. And over the course of many seasons, stretched out for many years, the entire interior space of the tree became hollow. Nothing there. So if you've ever seen a tree like this, the around the outside looked fine, maybe not, not super healthy, but healthy enough. But once it was cut down, the entire inner tree was rotten, unbelievable. What was the wound that allowed the bacteria in that rotted the heart? We don't know. But trees can die this way, long, slow death. So the interior heart of a tree is super healthy. As for the tree, so is the Christian. And as Paul talks about in Romans, tree, Romans 2, or Romans 3, uh, 
that as the heart affects the tree, so it affects the Christian. If you want the fullness of Christ, Paul's going to tell you in Romans 2, you got to check the heart. you got to check the heart. So we're going to do a heart check this morning. I want you to turn to someone to your left or right, maybe in front, behind you, and just tell them, check your heart. Look at them, look them in the eyes, say, check your heart. And then say it back to them, check your own heart. Don't judge me. Like, just tell them, don't judge me, man. Don't judge me. This entire book is about finding the common heart, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the audacity in the midst of the Roman Empire. Paul, who was not there to write a letter of disunified people about where they would find unity. And from Romans, we get the call to Christ is never about uniformity, but about unity. That we can disagree with certain aspects of the Christian faith, but what is essential, we must agree on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we were sinners, pursued by a God who loved us, set free. And the cross, though it's a fine picture of our faith, really it it tells just a part of the story. I mean, it tells the whole story that it's empty, but I was just worshiping this morning. I was like, I wish we could just have an empty tomb as our symbol. Because we are people of the resurrection. And we can disagree on different aspects of that, but the core of what makes us saved is our heart. And so Paul was writing this letter to a bunch of people, Jew and Gentile, different house churches in the center of the empire to say, we have a bigger mission ahead. Not in what we're arguing against, but what we're serving for. Our shared heart. And this is what Romans does. It aligns us around our common redemption from our common sin with our common hope for our common future. That's our common belief that Jesus Christ is our audacious hope. That's where the hope lies. Romans, one one commenter wrote this, a guy named Vernon Grounds. He said, we are God's creatures, yes, but we are God's image. And through the misuse of God bestowed freedom, we are God's shame. Stay with me. And we are God's problem, stay with me. But by that incredible strategy of the cross, God makes it possible for us to become the creator's children and we may become the creator's co-laborers and we finite humans may become the friends of an infinite and all holy God and ultimately we may be, if we have it so, God's glory. Do you love it? Okay, we love the glory, but we must deal with our hearts. We must deal with it. Oh, you mean his heart? The guy just looked at it and said, check your heart, man. No, our hearts. That's what Paul's saying in Romans 2. As the ancient philosopher Blaise Pascal said, truly it's an evil to be full of faults, but it's a greater evil to be full of them and be unwilling to recognize them. And certainly our mutual brokenness and our mutual need to be saved by Jesus will set the precursor for our future unity. We've got to do better. We've got to do better. How we do better outwardly flows from changed hearts internally. And so today we're going to be looking at two pictures of two hearts, God's heart and our hearts, with something hopeful at the end. So let's begin at the first point of our outline, God's heart. I hope you brought a Bible, verses 1 through 3 of Romans 2. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. We're learning about God's heart. For whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human, pass judgment on them and yet do the same, do you think you will escape God's judgment, Paul says, question mark. 
Paul used this word judgment nine times in these opening verses. And says, as you pass judgment, you waste the riches. All right? That's good. Somebody write that down. They did. It's called Romans 2. As you pass judgment, you waste the riches. As you judge others, you waste the riches of the abundance of grace. You put yourself somehow in, in, in a place where you're unable to receive the riches. So Paul's saying, do not pass judgment on others. Instead, look at your heart. Look at verse 4. Do you not show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, his forbearance, his patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Or as Eugene Peterson said in his paraphrase, God is kind, but he's not soft. In kindness, he takes us firmly by the hand and leads us into a radical life change. God's heart is fully kind. It's kind. And the kindness is is given to us for repentance. That's a Greek word, metanoia, which means a total 180. That I was this way and now that way. God's kindness is meant for repentance. God's kindness is meant to change us. God's kindness comes into my life and says, Scott, you can't stay the way you were because you're just too selfish, Scott. You're too proud. You're broken. But it's okay because God's reminding me this morning that the kindness is for repentance. The kindness isn't a blank check where then I get to just indulge everything that, that, that given to my own devices, I would do it. No, the kindness is meant for repentance. God's heart is fully kind. And in the fullness of God's heart, we need to have these things that almost feel paradoxical for us, that God is fully kind, and yet he's just. He's just. His heart is completely just and fully kind. Completely just. And, and you can pull this out of verse 11. God does not show favoritism. God is the perfect judge in this way. And I recognize, like, what a week to be talking about God judging and judgment and holy moly. Like, this is in the text. This is no fun at all. But this is the truth of the gospel, that God's heart is different than my heart, and that God's heart is fully kind and yet completely just. I don't know if you ever heard this story of ancient King Caligula who ruled in Rome from eighty thirty-seven to 41. Paul would have heard of him. Paul was alive during these days. This is just after Christ's crucifixion, resurrection. And King Caligula, they said, was nuts. But there was laws on the books that other laws to be amended would need to be posted a certain amount of time. So King Caligula, this Roman emperor, this unjust judge, would take little scraps of paper and write new laws and tuck them under stairwells and under podiums and beneath the, the, the Colosseum, fulfilling the regulations of having the laws posted but not really fulfilling them at all. And then people would be held accountable by the new laws. They said, you can't do this. See, many times we have this picture of how God judges us like King Caligula. That maybe we don't know the rules, that maybe that God's going to like swipe in and judge us and we didn't know what to do and it's not at all a picture from Romans that God's heart is completely kind in order for us to be changed because he's completely just and this is where this rubs up against our sensibilities because some of us in the room we want a God who's completely kind and then the judgment of God won't sit right with us or we want a God who's completely just, and then the kindness of God will, you know, it will just irk us. 
And so every one of us gets rubbed some way by this text. But we don't get to pick. The God who's fully kind, fully loving, is also fully just. And this is what Paul's doing in Romans 2 and next week with Romans 3, where he's saying we need to do the heart work before we can do anything outside our own bodies. And we tend to say, man, okay, don't judge me. Like, I'm on my own thing, I'm on my own pursuit, don't judge me. We fail to recognize that our sin carries repercussions. We see this oftentimes with others. We see this at the junction. We see people passing judgment on those that are addicted, on those that are caught in the throes of of homelessness on Aurora. And people will say, it's not that I'm not kind, I just don't want people to live without accountability. It's harder to see it in our own context. My pride becomes others hurt. My lust becomes people's trap. My hatred of somebody of different sexuality, people fail to see the image of God in me. That we, we need to do the heart work and understand that, that my sin keeps others enslaved because it keeps me enslaved. Tim Keller, pastor of New York, says that if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping yourself. God came to call us to account. He came to change us. He came to move us. He came to love us in order to, to say, you got to be different. You can't just stay this way. I fully love you, but I've come to judge you in order that you don't become enslaved to another false god. There's this story in the Old Testament of the difficulty of of understanding our hearts in contrast to God's heart in David, King David, who had, we learned, the heart of God. In the New Testament, they said David had God's heart. But David was a human And that means David had sin, and David was broken. And and we see this in the story in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, the story of 2 Samuel of Bathsheba, and David taking a wife that doesn't belong to him and then covering the sin up and committing murder. Oftentimes, when exposed with our sin, instead of metanoia, repentance and change, we want to cover it up. We want to blame others. We we, we don't want to deal with the hurt. We, We rush towards doing something to cover up instead of just expose and confess. This is what David did. And then when his friend, Nathan the priest, came, he said, you know, I'm going to tell you a story about something happening in the kingdom. There's this man. He tells this parable about a, a man that did something unjust and, and, and led to other people's hurt, sin leading to consequences. David, firmly in the midst of his own devious plan to cover his sin up, when hearing about the other man's sin, he, he's got righteous indignation. This is not right. Let's find the man. Let's put him in jail. Let's kill him if need be. This can't be. And then his friend looks at him and says, you are the man. This is your story. And this is what Paul comes to us as a church in Romans 2. No matter what wounds we're carrying on outside ourselves, Paul's saying, this is our story too. The sin has consequences. And that we need truth tellers to help us understand ways in which we departed from the total repentance. Living into this fully just and fully kind heart of God. In order to be changed to be more like him. And just a very practical thing, this is where it's so important to have people in your life that are truth tellers. So this is young life leaders, this is campaigners, this is going to young life or to youth group, having having an older person that you can talk to about real sin and brokenness that will accept you but also tell you the truth, you can't stay here. This is where marriage is, you have to practice. I blew it, I'm sorry, I sinned, I, I confess, let's move on. And for far too long, we as a church like, oh, don't look in my heart. If you look at me, you'll see my brokenness. Let's look at his heart. 
The work of the gospel is having people hold us accountable so that we can live into this upward call of faith. And so be that kind of person to someone else in this room. Have someone else in your life that you can say, will you tell me the truth? I learned this in a very simplistic way, out golfing, which reveals a lot of my sin in the world. My desire to cheat, my desire to be someone other than myself, my desire to lie to myself. Because it's normally I'm like hole two or three on a golf course and I'm like, Yes, I still have a chance to be the greatest golfer in the world. It's a lie. I'm actually horrible. And we were out golfing at Jackson Park. I was with one of my old friends. who You know, just old friends who can just tell the truth. And we're walking down the fairway. And I'm like, hole three, four, five. And I'm still like delusional that I'm going to have the round of my life at this point. And I'm telling him about my scoring decisions. About why I needed to take an extra shot off the tee and had to fix that ball eye here. And all these, all these are outside the rules of golf. Just so you know. If you're not a golfer, like what's he actually talking about? Like I'm, I'm telling my buddy about why the rules didn't really apply. Because, you know, the ball was too close to cart bath here. And I was a little stiff on that first. We were rushed. And that one guy said that thing. So I was, I was like telling him this whole narrative. And he's just this is kind of quiet he's like you could tell yourself whatever you want it's just golf it's just you write on this little piece of paper the number of times you hit the ball and like you can count them or not I don't really care but it's just pretty simple (laughs) and it's really 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 easy to see what's wrong with the world right now and much 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 harder to see what's wrong with our own hearts And before we get to some of the downstream fruit of Romans 8 and some of these good places ahead, Paul says, this is where we'll start. I I want you to have a picture of God's heart so that you know he's fully kind but fully just. And I need you to take a look in your own heart because if you want to change the world, it's going to start here first. So let's take a look at the second point of our outline where Paul makes this transition to, to our hearts that we tend to, to judge others because it's often more validating than, than judging ourselves. Or there's this whole other counter-narrative where we just get stuck so buried by shame that we just disengage from the process altogether. But Paul, look at verse 5 and 6. We won't look at every verse here, but we'll lift, look at some. Look at 5 and 6 from Romans 2. Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, Paul says, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they've done. Now that's, that's, that's tough. You see, in your stubbornness, unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself. You're like, well, well, who's he talking to? The text always matters because it's aimed somewhere. Audience always matters in the scriptures. So who's Paul talking to? He's talking to the Christians gathered in Rome. He's talking to people that think they're already pursuing the upward call of Christ. And he's saying, there's stubbornness, there's unrepentant hearts, you're fighting, you're dividing over things that aren't the core gospel, and and God will repay each person if that's the pursuit of your faith. And so he's saying we tend to judge others because it's more validating than, than, than actually looking into our own heart. And and this is convicting for us as a church. And he starts to lift this thing out. He says, instead of judging others, he says, be a doer of the word. don't judge, but be a doer. Now, I need you to stay with me. I'm going to read you three verses here from the middle part. of. I want to read verse 7 and verse 10 and and verse 13. Look at verse 7. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, immortality, God will give eternal life. Well, that's promising. 
Verse 10, but glory, honor, peace for everyone who does good, okay? First for the Jew and for the Gentile. I get it. For anyone that rallies around Christ, we can have really different views on really core things. But as long as we agree on the center point of Christ, Paul's saying, glory, honor, peace. And then verse 13, for it's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Now this is interesting. saying, don't judge, be a doer. Don't, don't, don't just, it's not the knowers who are ju- justified, it's the doers. The joy is in the doing. It's not what you say or hear or know or think, it's what you do. Now this, the minute that comes out of my mouth, the minute that comes out of my mouth, it's like, don't judge me, man. Don't judge me. This sure sounds like legalism. I thought Romans was about like, we've been saved by grace. What is Paul talking about here? It's not judging, it's doing It's because Paul is saying here that real relationship, love carries responsibility. And I need you to hear me. If you hear one thing this morning, the antidote, church, to judging is action. The antidote to judging is action. And we just can't be in two places at once. Though I so want to judge you, I'm going to go love these people in my neighborhood. Though I so want to find what's wrong with these people over here, I'm just going to be a person of grace and mercy to those that God puts in my path. Though I so want to focus on the sin of these other person driving me bananas, this morning I'm going to wake up and just read the scriptures and confess my sin and say, God, change me. So the antidote to judging, Paul says, is in this doing, in the action, and doing the work of loving God and rallying around both God's kindness and justice. Verse 13 of the message, doing, not hearing, is what makes the difference with God. And so beware of the law, says Paul, but know that you will live different. You'll go in from verse 17 through 27 and really do this kind of deep dive about the Jews and the Gentiles and the law. And if you're kind of new to the faith, it's like, what in the world is going on? What this goes back to is for the Jewish people, they had a covenant relationship with God. God chose them. They said, yes, we will follow you. God says, I will be your God. You'll be my people. And then Abraham, this goes all the way back to Father Abraham. And Pastor, I will preach on this in two weeks when we get to Romans 4. But Abraham, he he believed God. God spoke into his life. He took a journey. Faith is always moving us somewhere. It's always justification and sanctification. We're being changed as we go. Abraham's being changed as he's, he's going. And it's credited him as righteousness. And then God says, I will give you a sign that we're in relationship. And if, you know, Abraham's like, fantastic. What is it? Is it a trophy for the metal case? Is it a letterman's jacket? Is it a badge of honor? It's like, no, it's circumcision. Yeah, pardon? This is like, right? When we're like, faith is hard. I mean, the Abraham's, Abraham's call, like from the beginning, I'm not trying to be silly now, but like it was hard. It, it hurt. Painful. Like not what you would have thought. The upward call of Christ is one of sacrifice and commitment. And so Paul here in this whole middle part of the chapter, he's saying, There was a law that the Jews struggled to live into, but Jesus has fulfilled the law. His life for your life, his blood for your blood, his love for your love, he's ushered you into a new covenant relationship. And so Paul's saying, receive it and check your heart. Check your heart, man, check it. That's what this is all about, but this is so, so difficult to examine ourselves. We need to examine ourselves. This is what Romans 2 is about. We need to examine ourselves. 
Okay, I'm super fired up about what's going on in XYZ, but Paul's saying, if we're just going to talk about Romans 2, I need you to start with examining yourself. Why is examining our hearts so difficult? Two things to lift up. First of all, we struggle with this concept called selective transformation, that we've picked the things that we do and we've made them the most important things. And, and this is happening in the church like crazy, that we are, we, are des- we are deciding which is the most important articulation of the gospel, and we're blind to other things. So it's abortion or gun violence. It, it's race or it's prayer. It's homosexuality or Bible reading. The gospel of Jesus Christ is about total transformation. Total and complete transformation. That's why examining ourselves is hard, because all of us have blind spots. We have issues that make a whole lot of sense to us, and we see people that are really wrong— and Paul is saying, I want you to start with checking your own heart. The second thing that makes looking into our hearts so difficult is we tend to elevate non-essentials. And Romans is about the essential. It's about the essential. It is not an invitation not to care about things. It is not an invitation not to be fired up about what's going on in the world. But it is an invitation to take on a project of 2,000-year church history that we will rally around that which unites us, which is the power of Jesus Christ to give us life from our dead places. Amen? In Bethany Community Church, for 100 years, a little old sign by a little old theologian that still hangs over a little old chapel. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. And that has been a mantra. Because if we think we'll get to the nuances of essentials, we have in this room right now fundamentally very different expectations of what the essentials are. And I have news for you. We are riddled with inconsistencies, politically and spiritually. The values that we ascribe for one group, we don't ascribe to another. And we are fighting for justice here and taking it from here. And, 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 and it's in the church and it's tearing the church up. So Paul is saying, look into your heart and, and don't judge others. The antidote towards judging is this action. Galatians 6 says, let us not become weary in doing good. You'll be, you'll be too busy loving others to judge them. Because let's be honest, nobody changes from judgment. They change from this picture of God's heart, fully just, fully kind. Our life, our half-heartedness against God's wholeheartedness, seeing there's something here to give my life hope. This is where the hope lies. Let us not become weary. Look at verse 7 and verse 8 from, from Romans 2. This is really interesting. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, immortality, he'll give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. And so if you just look at 7 and 8, we have a contrast set before us. That we can persist in doing good, or we can be self-seeking. So, Paul's asking us in Romans 2, like, check your heart, look inside. We know you're fired up about what's going on there, but start looking inside and, and, and persist in doing good, but don't be self-seeking. This word persistence is an interesting one. It's a Greek word, hupomone. It means endurance, to keep the hope alive, keeping the hope alive. The same hupomone was used in Luke 21, to stand firm and win life. In Romans 5, 3, suffering produces endurance, hupomone. And hupomone, endurance, produces character and character hope. So where does the hope come from? It's doing this heart work. And so make no mistake about it, the heart work is the key work for us as a church in this time and place to press into it. Hupomone. 
Do not stop pressing in. Do not stop enduring. Do not stop waiting and persisting that God is still in the business of changing us in order for his glory. In verses 28 and 29, we get to kind of the the payoff of chapter 2. Look at the message paraphrase of verse 28 and 29. Don't you see? It's not a cut of a knife that makes a Jew. You become a Jew or or a righteous person, a believer by who you are. It's the mark of God on your heart, not a knife on your skin that makes a Jew. And recognition comes from God, not the critics. And so Paul uses this word, look, verse 28, 29, it's an interesting word that you really need to be able to, like, if we're going to study chapter 2, I know there's some discomfort around it, but we need to go there. Look at 28, 29. I'm reading on the NIV, verse 29, a person's a Jew who's one inwardly, and circumcision is the circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. So what is the circumcision of the heart? We have to be able, like, if you read that, like, that's an odd phrase. That's not one we throw around a lot in, you know, these days. It was foretold about in Deuteronomy, where in Deuteronomy, Moses says, you'll have a change of heart, we'll circumcise your heart. In the New Testament, Paul doesn't use this exact phrase of circumcision of heart again. But it means the mark of God on your heart. The mark of God, the mark of hope, the fullness as a believer, the circumcision of the heart. This is what we're pursuing. The mark of God on your heart. This is good, but how do we get there? How do we get there? How do we get there? Like, there's this whole thing. Don't judge people, but be doing. Persist in doing, but it's not about my works. All of a sudden, it came to me this morning. It came to me as I was studying it this morning. There's a circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. The prepositional phrase can't be lost upon us. It's the work of the Spirit that gives us the power. The circumcision of the heart, all change is internal first and has external fruit, but all change in the pursuit of God happens by the Spirit. Happens by the Spirit. Whoo! Well, we can take a deep breath with that because that's really good news. We won't make ourselves have new hearts. We can't fix ourselves necessarily, but we can ask, Holy Spirit, help me do this heart work. Help me take a deep look inside. And all real change is eternal, but it has external consequences and impact. Our focus, of course, always goes outside because it's easier than really looking internal. But the promise of the gospel is new hearts, new hearts, new hearts by the Spirit. Ezekiel 36, it was promised to the prophet Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. And I will remove from you your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And so what's available here in chapter 2 is new-heartedness, the gospel preparing us for the truth of, Genesis, I'm sorry, of Romans 3, about the sinfulness of, of all humanity. But the promise here at the end, we're going to end with the hope, is that we can receive new hearts by the gift of the Spirit. And so... Just a couple of things I want to get real practical about. Like, that sounds really ethereal. Some of us that are more metaphorical, English majors in the room, like, great, I'm going to look in my heart this week. And, you know, for some of you, like, engineers, like, I don't get it. Like, what do I do? A couple of things I want to just encourage you, real practically. Okay, pray. Ask the Spirit to give you a heart check. Like, I'm going to give you a specific way to pray in just a minute. But, you know, that's a, that's a practical thing you can do. Second, repent for someone that you've judged. Like, if you've judged someone in your home, in your friend group, at your school, at your workplace, maybe God's asking you this morning to say sorry for somebody that you've judged. You don't know what God's doing in their life. Or third, 
If, 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 if doing is the antidote than judging, then maybe ask God for something to do this week. Many of us are discouraged about things that are going on. You can ask God, what's a concrete thing to do? And does not count to update my Facebook feed. All right, not that that's bad, but like really do something for somebody else. God, give me something to do that'll give me a picture of the new heart you're calling me to. I said to, to, to pray for a heart check. I want to just kind of lift up an ancient practice, a spiritual practice called the prayer of examine. The ancient church has done this for, for centuries. But the prayer of examine was just something you could do at the beginning or end of the day where you would literally just pray over what happened and say, God, I just lived my life today, but I want to grow today. And it helped me get a heart check. And so this is, if you just want to write it down, this is like a practical way you could pray, pray at the beginning or end of the day on your way walking to school or on the bus from work or with somebody you love, there's like five R's. The five R's of how to examine your heart. First, relish the gifts from God today. God, thank you. Second, request the Spirit to lead a review of the day because all the new-heartedness comes from the Spirit. Third, review your day. Like, think about how you live, stuff you did, places you, you expressed God's love and justice and mercy and places you missed it. Fourth, repent to God of mistakes and failures because every single one of us has stuff to repent for. And finally, fifth, resolve to live tomorrow well. This relish, request, review, repent, resolve, just a practical prayer to do this heart work because the place for us to change is in our own hearts. That's, the, that's where all the change is going to come from. It's our hearts. And you might say, it doesn't seem fast enough, Scott. It doesn't seem fast enough. Yeah. You know, all the work that God is doing in me is all a gift of the Spirit, anointed because God is coming and pursuing a new heart for me. God cares about my social media feed and about my being a doer of his love and mercy, but all the change happens first in my own heart. I've told some of you this story before, so I'm, I'm just sorry for repeating myself. Some of you wouldn't remember this, but you know, two summers ago, I had these two men at the end of Malibu. We had been coming back from men's Malibu. We were moments from the dock, I'd been a speaker up there, speaking on fatherhood, speaking on devotion stuff, like kind of feeling like a little bit of a star, quite honestly. It's stupid, I know, but, right? I mean, how many of us are guilty of pride in the room? Certainly am. I was coming back feeling like a little bit of a star, spiritual star, nailing it, nailing it. And these two guys said, hey, can we pray for you? Sure. No problem. What do you want to pray for? I'm great. <laughs> they lay hands on me and start praying over me. And I just reminded this because one of the guys with Raul this last week praying over spirit work and mentoring and shaping next generation church leaders. And these men started to pray for me and they started to pray for my bitter heart. I, I was so mad. And so I almost stopped the prayer, but I'm like trying to be a good Christian. I don't think you can stop prayers, you know, but I was like... <laughs> Like, they're wrong. They're wrong about me. And, and, and he wasn't judging me. He was just telling me the truth. God, we see that Scott has this heart of love, and yet, God, there's pieces of his heart that are hopeless right now. God, would, would you help him give him a new fleshy heart? They're praying Romans 2 for me. And I get in the car, and I said to my buddy, I'm like, well, that was a bunch of junk. He's like, what? I'm like, those guys just prayed for my heart. And my buddy's like, oh, do you think it has to do with that situation you're dealing with with your family? I was like, What has transpired since has been nothing short of a miracle of the Spirit of God pursuing me to wholeheartedness. Meaning I have to be a different kind of husband and father 
and Christian and leader. Okay, I, I want to go change the world tomorrow. I do. But I, in order to do that, I've got to allow God to change my heart today. Do you see it? This is the work of Romans 2. Like, open up your heart and see places that God's not done with you in order to give you a witness that sets the stage for everything that's coming after, that we would be people holding our heart against the one heart of God, fully kind, fully just, to lead us towards transformation. Let me pray for us now. Lord Jesus, thank you for this morning, this reminder, this time, this place, this people, to be anchored in your truth. And God, we come with a whole boatload of feelings this morning, but we come to your text. We come as your people into this room to sing songs to the one holy, loving God. And it is an audacious claim this morning that we say, God, you are holy, loving, and holy, just. And God, we want our lives to be changed by that big truth. God, we are many of us in the room confused about how to live next as a church. But today, this morning, the good news is you're saying, just start inside. And know that it's the doing of this hard work that will lead to all the transformation we claim down the road. And so this morning, God, open our hearts up. Reveal to us places that we need revealed. And move us as your people, men and women, young and old, to being wholehearted like you. But God, may we receive your hope and joy and work that your spirit promises to do in our hearts this morning. It's your work, God, in us. We just simply say yes, that you would partner with us. And all God's people said, amen. Will you stand with us as we close with communion? Here at the end of the service, at the beginning of each month, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And this is the end of Jesus' ministry. He took the bread, in this case gluten-free bread, and said this is the body of Christ broken for you. And then he lifted up the, the, the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant poured out for forgiveness of sin. He served the sinners who would betray him because it was the sinners that he loved. All right? Find yourself at the table. Find yourself at the table. This is your story, your hope, Christ's blood for your life, that your heart would be changed in order to follow him. And so we, we approach this table. I would encourage you to pause and say, Lord Jesus, is there somebody I need to say sorry to? Is there sin that you need me to confess? What's going on in my heart? And then come to this table and know that you will be wholehearted from the work of the Spirit in your life. Let me pray over the elements now. Lord Jesus, thank you for Communion Sunday. Thank you for the bread and the juice which celebrates your body and your blood. We come, God, hungry. We come worthy because you've called us worthy desiring to be wholly changed, to be wholehearted. We love you, God. In your name we, we pray. Amen. The communion stations now open on the sides and the front. We'll move in kind of a circular fashion as we close in song.